Good evening and welcome to Beckles Baptist Church and to this evening's service. My name is Tom Fenning. I serve as the pastor of this local church and I'm thrilled to be able to welcome you. If you've um, joined us as someone who's found us online or is just visiting, it's great to have you here. And for regular folk, members of the church congregation here, it's great to meet with you as well. Um, we are anticipating hearing God speak to us as we look at his word and for time to Praise him in song as well. This is the last of the pre-recorded evening services that we are going to be running on our YouTube channel and it's our intention from next Sunday, the 4th of October, that our services will be live-streamed from the building here uh, with a congregation in the building too. Um, so if you're able to come and join us physically for the service next week, you'd be really welcome. But if you can just find us online, then you'll turn, we'll turn up at half six next Sunday and we'd love to see you then. Allow me to read some verses from Galatians chapter 2 um, that describe um, the life of faith that we are called to and the way that the Lord Jesus loves us as his people. If you're following along in our daily Bible readings, we read this chapter just yesterday. Listen to what Paul says here. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The great delight as followers of the Lord Jesus is that we are richly loved by him. He gave himself up for us to save us and it is our thrill to follow him to trust him, and above all, to love him in return. Let's bow our heads and let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he loves us, and he's made that plain by dying for us. Father, that staggers us that he would love us like this, the more we see of our failures and our sinfulness. Thank you for the forgiveness and love that there is in your Son. And we want to say that today we live by faith in him. We live trusting him. And we long that as we put our faith in him, we would be able to echo that love he showed for us in the love we show to him, his people, and the world around us. We ask that this service would help us grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for him. Please, our Father, would you forgive us all our sins from this last week and equip us to serve the Lord Jesus well in the days ahead. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing in response to what we have just seen here in Galatians chapter 2. A great song that speaks of God's love expressed towards us. Love divine, all loves excelling.
This evening, as we continue our series in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking at two chapters, 1 Samuel 18 and 19. And we're going to read just chapter 18 to begin with, so please do grab a Bible and join with me at 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my family or my clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now David's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give him to her, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, Speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you and his attendants will love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David. But David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I am only a poor man and little known. 
When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realised that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers and his name became better known. Well, please keep your copy of God's Word open in front of you there. It will help you to see as we go through these chapters what God is saying to us. And before we go any further, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And our Father, we pray that it would do its penetrating work in our hearts tonight. Might it help us discern where our hearts lie before the Lord Jesus. And might you, through your life-giving words, equip us to love the Lord Jesus more deeply than we did as we've begun this evening. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Do you love me? Do you love me? There is no more pressing question that you could hear the Lord Jesus ask you tonight than that question. Do you love me? It's the most revealing question you could ever be forced to answer. And I wonder how you would answer it. Do you love me, Jesus says to you tonight? Throughout all time, it's been of grave concern for God's people that they love God. The command we find repeated in the Old Testament and in the New. Note, please, that... It, the most important thing for us to do in relation to God is not to obey him or to trust him. Both of those things are important. It is more than that. It is that we love him. So we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the following command, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And not only do we see that command in Deuteronomy 6, but also repeated on the lips of Jesus many times. Loving God is all important, and above all, loving the Lord Jesus is critical. So as Jesus asks you that question today, do you love me, how do you answer? Well, if you answer, well, no, I don't love the Lord Jesus, you may try and make the case that actually you, you stand on looking at the Lord Jesus as just a neutral observer, but actually in... In the mind of the Lord Jesus, there's no neutrality when it comes to him. There's no fence to sit on. There's no demilitarized zone to occupy. If you refuse to love the Lord Jesus, you, you reject him. And Jesus would even say that you hate him, whether you know that that is the case or not. Uh, listen to how the Lord Jesus puts it. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. 
Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Listen again. Whoever is not with me is against me. To believe that you can just be neutral towards the Lord Jesus if you refuse to love him is to call the Lord Jesus a liar. So let me ask you that question once again. Do you love the Lord Jesus? How do you answer that question today? Oh, it's highly possible that you're sat there this evening thinking, well, what does all of this have to do with 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19, with David and Saul? Well, I want to say it has everything to do with them. In these chapters, we find a polarised response from people towards God's anointed king, David. Almost everyone loves David, but Saul, we see, hates him. And these responses towards David, God's anointed king, map out for us how we are to respond to the Lord Jesus, who is the true and better David, the reality to whom David points. And as we look at David, Saul, Jonathan, Michal, we will have to answer that question of Jesus. Do we love him? And as we think that through, we'll see what the shape of that love should look like and what the chilling cost of rejecting and hating the Lord Jesus is. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen David come onto the scene in the book of 1 Samuel. Back in chapter 16, he was anointed as king, but that was a hidden reality. Then last week, in chapter 17, as he fought Goliath, we saw him publicly revealed as the saviour of God's people as he slayed the giant and led the army in victory, in victory over the Philistines. Uh, we're going to look at chapters 18 and 19 and see both, in both chapters the reality of love and hate towards God's king. Our first heading is this, devoted love. Devoted love, and this is chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. Now, a quick survey through this chapter shows that everyone appears to love David. In verses 1 and 3, we're told that Jonathan loves David. Verse 16, we're told that all Israel and Judah, all of God's people, love David. Verses 20 and 28, Michal, one of Saul's daughters, loves David. And verse 22, we're told that all of Saul's officials, his attendants, love David. And if we take a, a brief look at what David looks like, we'd say, well, what's, what's not to love about him? He's a handsome man. He's a humble man. He's a man whose heart ticks like God's. He's a servant-hearted man who serves before a king who's on the edge of losing his sanity. He's a courageous man who will stand up before a three-metre-tall giant or anyone else that will come his way. He's successful in everything that he does. And above all, the Lord is with him. A critical reality. Verses 12, 14, 28, we're told time and time again, the Lord is with David. What's not to love? And more than the Lord being with David, the Lord has given David to God's people Israel. He's given to God's people Israel to rescue them and to reign over them. What is not to love? In Jonathan... Saul's son, we find a brilliant outline of what devoted love towards God's king should look like. 
And the way that Jonathan loves David is a great outline of what love for the Lord Jesus should look like for you and for me. Look down to 18, chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, if you've never looked in a Bible before, just to say the chapters, they're indicated by the big numbers and the verses, they're the little numbers. So big number 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. The friendship between David and Jonathan is one of the most, most remarkable pictures of friendship we find in the Bible. We see it characterised by commitment, sacrifice and honour. We'll think more about the shape of that friendship next week as we look at chapter 20. And before we see the uh, dimensions and details of Jonathan's devoted love towards David, I need to just say a word about the view that sometimes is voiced about Jonathan and David, that their friendship had some sort of sexual element to it. Three very brief things to say. The first thing is to say that there is nothing, nothing in the passage that would seem to suggest that there's any sort of erotic love between these men. Secondly, when it says that Jonathan loved David, he's simply following suit with what everyone else is doing. They also love David. And this word love almost, not quite, never, very rarely refers to an erotic type of love. Third thing. The Old Testament is unequivocal in its rejection of this kind of homosexual sexual relationship. And so to think that what we see here is it being approved of is just not right. I think the fact that our culture would suggest that um, David and Jonathan's relationship could be sexual is as much an indictment on our culture's dearth of deep friendships as it is in its obsession with sex. Enough of dealing with what this friendship between David and Jonathan doesn't look like. Let's see what it does look like. There are four words that describe Jonathan's devoted love of David that are worthy of our attention. First up, it is a united love. A united love. Did you see in verse 1 it said that Jonathan became one in spirit with David? What's described here is a real closeness between these two men. The word used there to describe becoming one in spirit is a family relationship, often described between um, what the Jacob and his dear son Benjamin. They, they're described as being united, one in spirit. So Jonathan's love for David cashes out in him treating him like a brother. What is staggering is that actually... For Jonathan, more than anyone else, David is like a rival because he's the one who'll take the throne that you would have ordinarily thought would come to Jonathan. United love, that's the first word. Second word, it is the word love that describes their love. Jonathan loved David as himself, it says in verse 1. And behind the word love here is both affection and commitment. It is feeling and devotion. We cannot think of it being just one and not the other. We can't think that it's a, 
affection but not commitment, nor can we think that it's commitment and not affection. Both are there. That measure of commitment's underlined in our third word. So unity or united, love, covenant. The commitment from Jonathan to David was deep enough for them to set their friendship in stone with a covenant. A covenant is built up of promises that are publicly made. Promises that would stand the test of trial and time and trouble. Here were men deeply committed to each other and willing to promise that openly. United, love, covenant, lastly, costly. Jonathan's devoted love towards David is costly. Look at verse 4. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David. This act from Jonathan shows that his devoted love to David is more than him simply going through the motions. This shows that he meant what he said when he said that he loved David. To give his robe, tunic, sword, bow and belt was really costly. Not simply in the things that were given, but in the symbolism that stood behind it. Jonathan was basically passing to David the right to become the king. His royal robe was given over. Now these four words that describe Jonathan's devotion to David, united, love, covenant, and costly, should shock us. I'll say again that Jonathan is the one who stood to lose the most by David's rise to power. But Jonathan outstripped everyone in his loving devotion to the king. The reason he did that is that he saw real gain in David becoming king. He saw that David was the anointed and the promised one of God who would be best for God's people and ultimately for Jonathan himself. And as such, Jonathan outlines what devoted love to God's king looks like. And his love to David is an outline of what our love for the Lord Jesus should look like. We should be people united to the Lord Jesus so that we see ourselves as part of his family. Our love for the Lord Jesus should be shown as costly. Our love for the Lord Jesus should combine both affection, feeling, and commitment, devotion. We thought earlier that there was much to love in David, humble, handsome, heart like God's. Well, with the Lord Jesus, there's just a billion times more things to love. So let me ask you, do you love the Lord Jesus? Do you love him? And if you're sat there thinking, well, the kind of extravagance of Jonathan's response to David, that just sounds a little bit beyond the pale for me. I'll have it toned down a little bit. I don't want that much commitment, that much love, that much cost. Well, if we're thinking of turning down the, the kind of measure of our love for the Lord Jesus, I don't think we've got an understanding of how much he loves us and at what cost for himself. While I was a student at university, I had the privilege of having a retired teacher, a man called John, read the Bible with me. He and his wife were beautiful pictures of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus. It was clear as you spent time with them that they loved the Lord Jesus. They understood that their identity was bound up in him. They were part of his family. 
They spoke of Christ with real feeling and they backed it up with costly devoted service. They lived in a humble home because they gave much of their time and money in the service of the Lord Jesus. It's my prayer that in the future people might say of me that I look a little bit like John and Pat in their devoted love for Jesus. May the same be true of you. There we see first up, devoted love. Now secondly, for the rest of chapter 18, we see jealous fear and hatred. Jealous fear and hatred. And this is 18 verses 5 through to 30. Saul had much, if not more reason to love David as anyone else. David had served Saul, bringing him military success, and humbly serves him, bringing spiritual relief when that harmful spirit from God came upon him. But instead of responding in love towards David, Saul is marked by an increasing jealousy that gives way to fear and hatred. It all begins as David returns from the battlefields and Saul gets ear of the songs that they are singing. They're singing of Saul slaying his thousands, but David slaying his tens of thousands, and it stings Saul to hear these songs. The fact that David deserves greater praise than him is by the by. So Saul, having tried and failed to take the direct route of getting rid of David, throwing a spear at him not once but twice, then sets about a more underhand tactic. He hopes and intends for the Philistines to do his dirty work for him. Look down to verse 17. Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merab, I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So at first Saul offers Merab to David, but then changes his mind. But then it turns out that Michal, Saul's daughter, loves David as much as Jonathan does. And when Saul thinks, hears of this, he says, yes, I've got him now. Look down to verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. So Saul, using his daughter as the bait, lays a trap he sure will catch David. And let's be honest, this appears a pretty brilliant trap, doesn't it? He's combining David's attraction to Michal with his hatred of the Philistines, and he thinks he's got David hook, line, and sinker. With a little persuasion from Saul's officials, David is in. Verse 24, when Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, tell David the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. The problem for Saul is, poor guy, David is just far too successful at the mission that he sends him on. And that shouldn't surprise us because the Lord was with David, as we keep getting told. And David not only beats the deadline that Saul is set, but he brings in double the amount of war trophies that are required. You can picture the scene in the courtroom as it's announced, David and his company of men have returned, O king. And Saul thinks, well, how on earth is he back now? 
And then he wanders in, and as these trophies of war are counted in grisly fashion, all the colour drains from Saul's face as he realises that where he thought he'd trapped David, where he thought he'd ended his life, actually he'd just served to increase his fame amongst the people. To what end? Verse 29. Saul became still more afraid of David, and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. Saul's hidden hostility to this point ends in outright enmity. Saul's rejection of David at first seemed to be a hidden thing as he tried to get the Philistines to do his dirty work. He seemed respectable, just sending David on another military mission. But actually, he was acting out of fear, hatred, and rejection. It appeared okay, but actually it was wicked. People's rejection of the Lord Jesus today can appear like a a moderate, a reasonable thing, an understandable thing. It can be hidden under politeness and vague interest, but in reality, anything but devoted love towards the Lord Jesus actually is characterised by fear and hatred. As Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And a life lived in rejection of the Lord Jesus will ultimately end up looking like Saul at the end of the chapter. There we will find ourselves characterised by fear and enmity. Failing to love the Lord Jesus will cash out in in the present, with us hearing his commands and his calls and responding to them with fear, fearing the things that we might lose if we have to follow Jesus, rather than surrendering to him gladly the things that we could never keep. People who love the Lord Jesus hear his commands not with fear but with delight, because they know that they actually spell freedom. But for someone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus, they hear the commands of Jesus with fear and with rejection and ultimately with hatred. People who reject the Lord Jesus are marked with fear and hatred in the present, but also strikingly in the future. There's a vivid picture of this in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, chapter 6, where people of every type, the important and unimportant, the, the powerful and the weak, All those who have failed to love the Lord Jesus are filled with fear at his ultimate return when he returns to wrap up history. This is what we read, Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. They hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, they call on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. People who refuse to love the Lord Jesus will end up in fear and ultimately enmity to the Lord Jesus. I would urge you not to follow in suit after Saul, but to love the Lord Jesus, to love him. So we've seen devoted love, and then we have seen jealous hatred and fear. Now thirdly, costly love costly love. And this is chapter 19, verses 1 to 17. 
As we find ourselves in chapter 19, Saul's fear and hatred of David leads him to an open plot to kill this Israelite hero. He even attempts to enlist the services of his son in bringing about David's demise. But his requests fall on deaf ears as Jonathan runs to warn David, his friend, of the danger that lies ahead of him. And then Jonathan, in real bravery, says that he will go publicly to confront his father. It's an act that could cost Jonathan everything. Just look at what he says in verse 4, chapter 19, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Did you see in those verses that twice over, Jonathan described his dad's act as sinning? That's what's meant literally by that phrase, do wrong. It is a serious offence that the same word is used to describe of Saul failing to be patient to wait for the arrival of Samuel and starting to make the sacrifices himself back in chapter 15. And what did it bring about? It brought about God's formal rejection of Saul as king. So Jonathan is telling his father off plainly, you've sinned against the Lord in plotting to kill David. Pack it in. Remarkably, Saul heeds the warning and makes a promise not to kill David, although it will turn out that that promise is not worth anything. Jonathan put himself at massive personal risk to challenge an unhinged, unpredictable king. It could have cost him his life, but he willingly stood up for God's king in public, no matter of the cost. And in doing this, he sets the shape for you and me of what love for the Lord Jesus should look like. It should be costly, public, courageous even. And what we see Jonathan doing as he contends with his father, Michal, David's wife, then does in a somewhat underhand fashion as she warns David to run, lets him out of the window, and then when Saul's men come to catch David and take him off, she lies and says that David's ill and detains Saul's men, allowing David time to escape. The Bible remains silent on the slightly murky morality of what Michal is doing as she lies to her father. But again, God uses her actions to protect David. And even in doing these things, again, she is courageous in confronting her father. Again, she outlines for us the costly nature of love for God's king. And the challenge for us is, as we hear Jonathan and Michal loving David at potential personal cost to themselves, we need to ask ourselves, does our love for the Lord Jesus ever look that public and that costly? We need to be people who are courageous in loving the Lord Jesus, not timid. Now, I can remember a, a pastor a few years ago, a friend of mine who I talked with, who said that they had a a man in their church congregation who led their Sunday school and had done for years. But it became plain as this pastor talked with him that his 
Work colleagues had no idea that he was a Christian. His love for the Lord Jesus had not cashed out in him publicly standing up for the Lord Jesus. And so in the weeks that came, the pastor talked with him and prayed with him that he might get opportunity to be courageous in his faith in the Lord Jesus, public, willing to face the cost. And in the weeks that came, he had great opportunity to speak of the Lord Jesus and his faith in him, simply, straightforwardly. I wonder if you say you'd love the Lord Jesus, but you, you actually keep that private. Well, our love for him needs to be public. And we need to be willing to face the cost. Fourth and final heading, irrational hatred. Irrational hatred. Throughout chapter 19, God's protection of David is quite remarkable. But the most miraculous... Uh, protection of David is saved for the very end of chapter 19. David seems trapped in Ramah, where Samuel is, the priest that he's gone to see. And Saul sends one, two, three groups of men off to capture David. Each one, as they arrive in town, finds God's spirit descend upon them and they start to prophesy. What exactly that word prophesy means is changes in different contexts. But here, It simply means that they are so overwhelmed by God's power and his presence that they cannot come to do the dastardly deed of taking David away. And with the third bunch of men taken off and failing to complete the mission, Saul finally throws his hands up in the air and says, well, if you want a job done properly, do it yourself. But then look how things end for him in his irrational hatred of God's king. Look down to verse 22. Finally, Saul himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he said, where are Samuel and David? Over at Naoth of Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. To this point, everything should have dissuaded Saul from his enmity towards David. It should have shown it that was foolish and futile. His daughter and his son, his attendants and officials have tried to dissuade him, but so deep is his rejection of God's king that he's no longer able to see sense. And the chapter ends dripping in irony and shame. And it exposes Saul's hatred as irrational and idiotic. We've been told time and time again that the Lord was with David, so much so that to oppose David is to oppose the Lord himself. And there can be no more irrational, idiotic, dangerous thing to do than that. And do you you notice as we get to the end of our passage what kind of man this hatred has made Saul to be. He is a shell of the man that we found back in chapter 8 and chapter 11 when he wins the military victory. Here, just look at his emotions for a moment. They are are characterised by jealousy, fear, anger and hatred. Look at his conduct. He is devoid of integrity. He now seeks to shed innocent blood He now fails to keep his promises. Opposition to God and his king will not make a person better and stronger, but less and weak. 
It's the case for Saul. It's the case also for you and me. If we reject the Lord Jesus, we will end up a shell of the person that we could have been if we had loved him. Opposition to the Lord Jesus will ultimately lead to a breakdown in our character, our emotions, ourselves. And if you have never bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, the great news is that there is time. I would urge you to do that. And the more you love the Lord Jesus, the more you come to look like him. And there is no one more courageous, with more integrity, with more love and joy to become like than the Lord Jesus. Hostility and hatred towards the Lord Jesus is irrational. I would urge you to bow the knee to him. Back to the question we began with. Do you love the Lord Jesus? There is no more pressing question to be asked or to answer. Many of us will say yes. Can I urge you to keep loving him? And never get into the position where you say, well, I've loved him enough now, I'll have a break. Because to walk away from loving the Lord Jesus is to some extent to follow suit with Saul. Back in chapter 16, we're told that he loved David but then he gave up. Keep loving Jesus. And if you sat there saying, well, I've never loved Jesus, can I urge you to do that soon? While there is still time, there is no one better to love, and there is no one who has loved you as much as he has. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Leave us with a moment of silence to think about how we'd answer that before I lead us in a prayer. Father, these are quite startling verses and chapters from 1 Samuel and they're deeply challenging as we think of how they model to us how we're to love the Lord Jesus. Father, many of us do indeed love your son, but we plead with you that you'd help us love him more deeply and more richly. We thank you that he has loved us lavishly and we pray that we would respond in devoted love towards him. And Father, for any who have not loved the Lord Jesus, please would they see their great need to do just that. Would you save souls, even tonight we pray, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing again now a song that picks up the theme of God's amazing love towards us in his Son, how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch His treasure How great the pain of searing love the Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory 
Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until. Was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in No power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know is. going to spend some time praying now. Um, I've invited Alistair and Ruth to lead us in our prayers. Alistair is going to pray for some local churches nearby that he would often serve when we're out of lockdown and then Ruth is going to lead us in some prayers for individuals in our church family. In the old normal times I was regularly absent from worship here as I was leading worship and preaching elsewhere at the Bethel Christian Fellowship in Lowestoft the Commodore Evangelical Church in Alton Broad and at Westfield Mission in Brundle. These are all small congregations with between seven and 20 uh, worshippers. These that was the numbers when they were present on my last visits, which ended on the 9th of February. There are common themes for all these three churches, and that's what we're going to explore now in our prayers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for, for your church worldwide. We thank you for the opportunity we all have of being part of a local church. And we think of these particular local churches today that I have links with for a number of years now. Like ourselves, they are missing meeting together. And we recognize that for some who are part of these fellowships, that means that perhaps they're spending more time alone and at home. We recognise too, Lord, that none of them so far have returned to having services in their buildings with no plans for these to begin. And we feel for them in these circumstances, especially as we have now been able to return to some sort of normality here in the new situation in our own buildings. We recognise also, Lord, that a few of their members have been unable to access worship although some in other parts of the country where they have relatives have been able to do that. Two of the churches have had to postpone members' meetings 
and there's an uncertainty about when they can be helped. And we pray for clarity to be given to them as to how these practicalities can be worked out in their settings. The majority of the, these congregations are senior citizens and some may not be able to return when public worship resumes. I know of one church where a member has died, not as a result of COVID, but because of age and infirmity. And another who is quite elderly now, and it seems unlikely to return. For those who are in that situation, Lord, we pray for them, as being on their own, they're more likely to miss the fellowship, even if it is only once a week. All three of these churches are mainly dependent on outsiders like myself to provide ministry. And they're all feeling it, finding it difficult to uh, get people to come on Sundays to lead worship and to preach. And the reality is that for some of them who have been coming may not be able available when services resume. Though some of us find it difficult to identify with small fellowships like these, but we can understand something of what they're experiencing. And we pray, above all, for their encouragement. We pray, Lord, that you will give them, a, on an individual basis, your support. They'll be conscious of that. And for those who have leadership roles in these churches, give them wisdom to know how to proceed into the future. And we pray, Lord, that they'll be able to get the right information that they need in order to move from this stage in the, in the lockdown into another, other stages in the future. We pray, Lord, that the contacts that some of us are able to make with them brings encouragement too. And so, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon these fellowships. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to you tonight, Heavenly Father, we bring before you those in our fellowship who are lonely or frightened by what is happening in the world. Help each one of us to be aware of those around us who may need a chat, a phone call, or other practical help. Help us to remain faithful to you by praying for them, and may we be your hands reaching out to them. Father, we commit to you those who are in pain or not able to get out, comfort them, and we ask you to meet their needs and all in the fellowship and strengthen them, and may they know that they are loved by you. We pray especially for Tinica at this time as she rests in your peace and love. Thank you that she doesn't appear to be any pain or distressed. We pray for her family too, as they so lovingly care for her. Strengthen them through these difficult days in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Before we conclude our service, we have just a few notices to mention to you. And the first is to mention that we have put a playlist of songs together um, to help you respond to all that we have been hearing in our service this evening. Um, for any of you who are unable to either tune into the live stream service or attend the service in our building this morning, um, we shared the Lord's Supper uh, for all those who are able to be present in the building. For any of you who uh, weren't able to be here physically but would love someone to come and share the Lord's Supper with you, 
please do get in touch. We've got a number of people lined up willing to come to people's homes to share the bread and the cup and to remember the Lord Jesus' death in their place. If you'd like someone to come and see you, please do drop me an email um, and I'll gladly arrange for that to happen. Some events to look forward to in the week ahead. Uh, Our home groups meet this week, both in the evening on Thursdays and then the daytime on Fridays. And please do make sure you look out for the information that comes from your home group leader. If you're not part of a home group, these are our small group Bible studies. Should you want to be part of one, please do get in touch with me and we'll see if we could allocate you to one of our existing groups. That's what's happening midweek. Then on to next Sunday, we meet again in the morning, both at 9.15 and 11.15 here in the building. Please do note that from next Sunday, we have both creche and Sunday school beginning happening at both services. If you have young children and would like to see what that's going to look like, you'll find videos that Beth has uploaded onto our YouTube channel that explain what it looks like and how it will run for both Sunday school and creche. We'd encourage you to make sure you look at them before you come next week. So that's next Sunday morning. Do note, please, that the 11.15 service is live-streamed on our church YouTube channel. And then next Sunday evening, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're looking forward to live-streaming that service, but also having that service here with people in the building as a congregation for that service too. That evening service starts at 6.30, and we'll be continuing to look in 1 Samuel then. One final notice to mention to you is that we've put together, or Peter has put together, the latest of our introductory videos to the books of the Bible that we've been reading in our daily Bible readings. And this week we come to the introductory video to 1 and 2 Kings, which we're going to show now that will help introduce the book before we start reading it this week. One and Two Kings is a book of division. Divided loyalty is leading to a divided kingdom. One and Two Samuel gave us high hopes for King David and his successors. One and Two Kings pops the bubble quickly. At first, the kingdom flourishes under a wise king. Solomon's on the throne. These are the glory days. The temple of God goes up and God moves in. The king's palace goes up and the nations come in, amazed and admiring. It's the Queen of Sheba who comes in and says to Solomon, how happy your people must be. But soon, the kingdom is divided under foolish kings. That's chapters 10 through to 16 of the second book. A desire for more horses, chariots and wives sees Solomon's wisdom turn to folly and his kingdom split in two. His death brings a battle for the throne, a split in the nation, and two kings at odds with each other in the north and south of Israel. And from this point on, the camera lens goes back and forward from north to south with over 400 years and 40 kings covered. Some rule longer than others. Some rule better than others. But none can stop the rot. Not even prophets, great prophets like Elijah and Elisha can turn the tide. And that's the first theme to look out for as you read the book of 1 to 2 Kings, the wisdom and the folly of man. Both are clear to see and you don't have to be a king to learn from the kings. Their lives inform us 
and warn us of loyalty and disloyalty to God, of wisdom and folly. Almost inevitably, the kingdom disintegrates in chapters 17 to 25. Because of these foolish kings, and despite the best efforts of some of the better kings, like Hezekiah and Josiah. First, the northern kingdom of Israel is invaded by the Assyrians and the people taken into exile. And then, it's the southern kingdom of Judah's turn, as they're invaded by the Babylonians, and their people are taken into exile, out of the land. But fourthly, finally, that the kingdom is not done with not destroyed. The last few verses end on something of a cliffhanger as the king of Judah is released from prison, hinting at a future release for the people of Judah. This is not the end. And here the book makes plain both the kindness and severity of God. Sin is dealt with severely. The consequences are dreadful and deserved. But note the kindness of God. When God acts to judge at the end of these books, one and two kings, we don't think, how could God do that? We're left thinking, what took him so long? And the answer is the patience of God, the kindness of God, the grace of God. He truly is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, who does not leave the guilty unpunished. If Israel are to return, if exile is to end, if this kingdom is to rise from the dead, it will not be because of Israel. It will be all of God. And in this way, a book about division proclaims the gospel and pushes us to Jesus, a king who shares the wisdom but not the folly of these human kings, who shows the kindness and soaks up the severity of the Lord himself. He is Jesus, the son of David, the King of Kings. We're going to close with some verses from the Bible. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus, for that amazing promise that you will come and live with us as we love you. Give us grace to help us love you, we pray. Might we do that this week in a way that shows our devotion and our commitment to you, we pray. For your sake we ask it. Amen.